This week, we have our friend Wayne Jett back with us today, and we're continuing the series that goes through his book, The Fruits of Graph. Thanks for listening. Welcome to the Banking with Live podcast. I'm your host, James Nethery. And again, today I have our friend Wayne Jett. We're going to continue discussing classical economics, his book, The Fruits of Graph. Um, so thank you for listening. Good morning, Wayne. How are you? Fine, James. Good to, good to be here with you again. Thanks. Perfect. Look, we're excited to continue the uh, the background of really what got us here today. I think what your work, and I've said it many times, the work that you've done in your book, the uh, Fruits of Graph, Great Depression, the Great Depressions in and now, um, is really the truth in history when it comes to the Great Depression. And I'm excited for the listener to have an opportunity to discover the truth. So that's kind of my intro, Wayne. I appreciate you. And let's just pick up where we left off from the last call. Okay, great. Um, um, well, I think last time I, uh, I certainly covered uh, the so-called Laffer curve, uh, the rule of diminishing returns that actually is several hundred years old, uh, that if you uh, increase the tax rate, uh, you get to a point where the government actually gets less revenue because it hurts the economy so much. Uh, they just uh, don't have any activity, and so therefore you don't get as many revenues. So you want to be sure that you're uh, on the lower side of uh, the, the curve in terms of uh, maximizing your re- government revenues at the same time doing as little damage as possible to uh, to the uh, uh, economy and the prosperity of the of the people and so forth. And uh, going on from that, uh, last time I, I wanted to get to a couple of the points that if you use the same ideas, that if that is you start from a zero tax rate to a hundred percent tax rate, and uh, this time uh, let's don't uh, uh, graph the uh, tax revenues. Let's uh, let's for example uh, graph the number of jobs or the level of employment. Uh, what's the level of employment at zero tax rate as compared to 100% tax rate? Well, the two things that are obvious is uh, that uh, number one, the jobs are gonna be zero when you're at 100% tax rate because if you're taking everything, nobody works and nobody has a job and so forth and so on. Uh, But look what happens over at a zero tax rate, the number of jobs, you're going to have your maximum employment at zero tax rate. And so if ever you're going to have 100% employment, you're going to have it when you have the zero tax rate. And so on that graph, you basically have 100% uh, employment level that begins dropping uh, as you go to 100% tax rate to zero. Uh, And the point being that uh, in order to have the maximum employment, you wanna make absolutely sure you've got a really good reason to be on the low side of the Laffer curve. That is, be on the side that gets the same revenues that you would have if you had a much higher tax rate, but you're on the descending side of it. So you want to make sure, again, that you're on the low side of the tax curve, uh, on the Laffer curve, uh, in order to be sure uh, that you're going to be as close to 100% employment as you can get. Um, the same kind of thing uh, you can do by graphing again 
the tax rate along the bottom line, and this time uh, put your GDP growth rate uh, as the uh, vertical bar. And so you graph that and uh, your GDP growth rate, how fast is the country growing? How, how fast is the economy growing? Uh, you're going to have your absolute max growth rate at 0% uh, tax rate. And uh, on this particular graph, uh, you don't just fall to zero when the tax rate is 100%. You fall to zero when you get to, say, 40 50% or something of the sort. If you're taking that much taxes out, your GDP growth rate is going to fall to zero. And it doesn't stop at zero your GDP rate will go through the floor. Uh, if you're, if you're uh, 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 going to go to a 50% and higher tax rate, uh, taking revenues uh, out of the economy that way, your GDP growth rate is going to be so negative, you're going to have a collapse of the economy. So again, a very strong reason to make sure your tax rate is as low as possible. So I, I, I wanted to make sure both of those graphs are in my book. Uh, uh, very simple little concepts, uh, but uh, believe it or not, these straightforward uh, aspects of reasoning just completely escape and are avoided by the Keynesians. They do all of their gobbledygook and never get around to these basic points of why you must not do these things of these higher tax rates just to punish the uh, rich or something of the sort. Uh, it is a, a very bad policy in terms of the prosperity of the, comp, uh, of the country. So um, I think we've uh, pretty well covered uh, that aspect of uh, the basic ideas of classical economics uh, in terms of your planning of, uh, of the tax rate. Um, let's uh, go a little bit more on monetary policy. Um, I think I said last time that the basic aspect of classical economics is that you want money that is stable in value. Uh, and again, I've pointed out that uh, the reason for that is uh, when you have a currency or a money that loses value over time, then it's very uh, unsatisfactory for laborers, for example, because whatever savings they've been able to put back, if it's losing value, I mean, that's, uh, that's, a, that's a very damaging thing for people who in their later years have only a certain amount that they work very hard for. It's very hard to get when, when they earned it. But if it comes up as being uh, much less uh, worthy, uh, by the time they're old, it's not going to support them. And so they, they go hungry. It's like the same kind of thing, of course, that uh, we're facing right now with the dollar in spades because the dollar is a very, very unstable. Uh, it is a fiat currency. Uh, it is uh, issued not by a federal agency. It's issued by a privately owned bank uh, and so forth. We, we've been through that before. Uh, so um, that is what uh, classical uh, theory says. And that is why classical theory says uh, we must go back to a, uh, uh, a gold measured value of currency. It doesn't have to be a gold coin. Uh, it can be certificates that are readily exchangeable for gold. Uh, but uh, that's the kind of thing that actually I think is going on right now. Uh, 
were in a death struggle at the Federal Reserve. Uh, some are saying that it's uh, in its very final phases. I tend to agree with that. We've been going toward it. Uh, but uh, uh, that aspect of uh, uh, classical monetary theory is uh, uh, very important. But stable value is uh, in the money is very uh, vital for another reason. It, in production operations, for you to be successful, you need to have uh, stable prices. So you don't have to, if you have inflation, for example, a producer has to adjust his sale prices regularly and on a timely basis so he can raise enough money to buy supplies to make, produce more goods. Uh, if he doesn't make those adjustments and whatever cost and time uh, is involved uh, in making the adjustments on a timely basis, he, if he delays that, he's not going to have enough money to have his supplies and support his operation and, and produce the profit he needs in order to, uh, to make a living. Uh, and so, um, in that circumstance, uh, uh, you you need that stable value, and uh, I think I can uh, just leave it uh, there and move on. Um, uh, the aspects of mercantilism relating to international trade, uh, there, there was a time, of course, the mercantilists in the real old days, I mean, they... Uh, they basically prohibited other countries from selling in their own country because they wanted the private markets for themselves because the king had, had given them their, their exclusive monopolies in their own country and they didn't want outsiders coming in and selling. And so they promoted wars and that sort of thing. Uh, but uh, the, the Scottish uh, uh, economists, uh, Adam Smith and uh, David Hume uh, after Smith, uh, encouraged the idea that actually everybody does better if they're able to sell on an international basis. Uh, you can make things better here and sell at other places. And so that made a lot of uh, headway, which was important politically because it started getting the ears of politicians that didn't just listen to the king anymore. And that's where we started getting the opening, the vital opening in which so-called capitalism actually was able to stick its head up and be promoted on the basis that it could really make things boom. That's what we really had during, uh, after the Battle of Waterloo, particularly uh, 1815, uh, we started having tremendous growth. It was only 33 years after Waterloo, uh, in 1848, I believe it was, that Karl Marx was writing that the miracle of the capitalists is beyond belief <laughs> that the productivity uh, and the prosperity of populations had gone off the charts. He, and he listed in his book uh, uh, on the subject, uh, I think that was uh, Das Kapital or something of the sort, but uh, he, he praised the, uh, uh, the capitalists for the amount of prosperity they'd been able to get. He called them the bourgeoisie, uh, the uh, French name uh, given to the uh, people who went into business and made their businesses and became uh, prosperous, even though they were not anointed by the, the royalty to do it. 
And uh, uh, so uh, that was the boom that also happened in America. It happened over the 1800s, even despite the absolutely horrific war, the Civil War, the war between the states uh, that uh, uh, killed more uh, warriors uh, on uh, the two sides than all of our other wars. And uh, in, in the circumstances, uh, we then uh, got to the point of having uh, that tremendous book of 1880 uh, by uh, Henry George, the small newspaper man who actually, his newspaper uh, went bankrupt and went out of business in the 1870s. And why was that? It was because the Congress had passed a law in 1871, 72. I don't have the exact date in mind of the law passing, but they passed a law saying that the value of the dollar is going to go back to what it was in gold uh, before the Civil War. Now that meant that you had, uh, there was going to be an upward adjustment in the value of the dollar very substantially uh, because it had more or less uh, uh, doubled the price of gold from $20.67. It was practically double that at the time. It was at least in the 30s. And so issuing a law that says in 1879, we're going back to a $20.67 uh, value of the dollar, that put into a federal statute uh, a very sharp deflation therefore an increase in the value of each dollar. And so what was happening to employers during that entire time, producers, uh, they were producing goods and then having to sell for less than the production costs and they were going out, of, the more they produced, the more they lost money. And so uh, uh, they were going bankrupt as that small newspaper did of Henry George and um, uh, it was a very, very sharp depression. Uh, uh, interestingly enough, uh, uh, the historical coverage of it uh, by, for example, Milton Friedman in the monetary history uh, of the U.S., uh, he said it was a very, very sharp depression. De uh, de depression. He didn't call it really deflation, which is uh, amazing to me. I think it was because the people publishing that book uh, did not want it discussed. And so he basically avoided it. And uh, even though he uh, readily reported that it was a very, very destructive uh, in terms of the number of bankruptcies and people out of work and so forth across the country. And he didn't mention that it was caused by a statute making the deflation happen. So uh, therefore, we then get the book in 1880, uh, at the end of that Great Depression from this small newspaper man, Henry George, uh, who methodically in a, a very, very capable writing uh, uh, performance, goes through the various theories of why people, we have so many poor people. What is the cause of poverty? Progress and Poverty was the name of this book. Yeah, yeah. 
It sold more than 2 million copies in the next 20 years after it came out. Uh, that's worldwide in many languages. And uh, let me tell you for certain, uh, I don't even get into the first category. Uh, he sold more books uh, in his first year as a self-published author, uh, almost than I sold in the last seven or eight. Uh, and uh, until last year or so, uh, my book was almost not even on the chart. Uh, but his was so well-written and so convincing in going through each of the theories as to why we have so many poor people. He, he, he absolutely demolished the Malthusian theory that it's because poor people have so many children. Um, and uh, that it's overpopulation that causes the poverty. Uh, he goes through each of the other ideas uh, and not to go through each of them uh, again right now, but uh, he winds up with saying, here is the real reason we have poverty. The real reason there's poverty is because by the nature of mankind, particularly those human beings at the lower end of, of uh, the standard of living, need raw land in order to which to, on which to labor. Because if they have some land, not even very much, but if they have some land, that's productive, they can be productive and they can support themselves and they become uh, self-supporting and they're no longer poor. Uh, and he said, here's the problem that we have so many poor people. And not only that, but those poor people are the most numerous right in around the big cities where the rich people are. And he says, the basic problem is the rich people are buying all the good land and they're hoarding it. They're taking it off the market. They're holding it for many years until it becomes more valuable with the growth of the city. And then they can make uh, money on it that way. And they're keeping regular people from being able to afford it or to use it. And of course, the hallmark of that kind of practice, you can look at England. And so much of the land of England, very good land, but owned by the royalty off limits it's for hunting it's for this or for that or for parks or whatever uh, but uh, he makes those points and then he winds up not by saying that we got to take all the land or we got to do this or do that he says his proposal was wipe out all the taxes that you have presently the taxes on uh, whatever the government needs in order to operate and instead of those taxes, substitute a single tax. And that would be a tax equal to the rental value of unused property. The rental value of undeveloped, unused property. That means that uh, those people who are hoarding the large sections of property would have to pay out the entire rental value of it if they're not, if it's not being used. And so therefore uh, they wouldn't be holding it. That would put, make that property available to ordinary people. And, uh, and you would also get all the money you need in order to operate government. That was his solution to it. Uh, and then coming to the end of that, what he said was, uh, it's just so relevant today. 
in a almost a final paragraph in the book, right in the end, he says, why is it we have come to all of these wrong conclusions in analyzing the economic problems of mankind? It is because we are led in all the wrong directions by the influence of a powerful pecuniary force that worldwide in every nation writes the laws and molds the thoughts, in other words, controls public opinion by public expressions, writes the laws and molds thoughts in every nation so as to lead people in the wrong direction in all the important affairs of state. Uh, and uh, he said no more about it at that point. But of course, uh, uh, I won't take a lot of time uh, telling you again that, uh, that Henry George became not only the best-selling author worldwide, but he came, he moved to New York uh, became a the, the third most highly respected man in America, was finally persuaded to run for mayor uh, of New York City by a third party because the, the labor movement at the time wanted to try to clean up the crime in labor as well as otherwise, the political crime in New York City. And uh, as a result, uh, the Democrat Party uh, pulled in the... Uh, I think he was the majority leader of the House at that time, a very powerful politician. He was also a very wealthy man. He sold his steel company to, U to Carnegie to form U.S. Steel uh, and, became, and, and ran for that office. And in a three-man race with the Republicans putting up Teddy Roosevelt, uh, both the steel magnate and Teddy Roosevelt ran hard against Henry George and Henry George looked like he was going to be the winner. And uh, in fact, he, it was neck and neck between the steel magnate and Henry George with Theodore Roosevelt being a very slow pony uh, coming around the turn. And, uh, uh, and Henry George actually accused fraud in the collecting uh, and counting the votes or he would have won. Uh, but uh, uh, that was the circumstance uh, as of the end of the 1800s. Um, and uh, <clears throat> one year later uh, was the assassination of uh, William McKinley uh, with Theodore Roosevelt as his vice presidential candidate, therefore becoming president. Um, my opinion is that uh, McKinley was most likely assassinated because he uh, was offending the uh, uh, the ruling elite uh, because they wanted imperial war as we had already fought the Spanish war under the first McKinley presidency and he didn't want to do it anymore. Uh, and so uh, Theodore Roosevelt uh, was their guy. And uh, in 1901, uh, at just after... McKinley, uh, just after uh, Roosevelt had taken power, there came out another little book uh, that really got not much attention at all from ordinary Americans, 
but it uh, became the uh, what I call the manifesto of the ruling elite uh, that uh, set up their game plan. It was disguised in a little book that was written by, at that time, an unknown author by the name of H.G. Wells from Britain, a commoner uh, who had a uh, kind of a classy education, but he had written only nonfiction and and uh, and horror stories up to that point. But this book uh, called Anticipations in 1901 got him an immediate invitation as the honored guest at the Theodore Roosevelt White House. And it was because hidden back in a little book that looked like it was nothing but academic uh, gibberish about uh, populations and how they uh, grow or something of the sort uh, was actually laying out uh, the declaration to the insiders of the ruling elite that our plan is that we must act now to destroy the middle class entirely. All of the people who are able to support themselves by their own productivity at whatever level, whether they're very successful or whether they're just barely supporting themselves, we want them all gone because they've got a hold of this idea of so-called democracy or Republican voting, that they really have the right to elect their own uh, politicians and leaders. Uh, we can't put up with it anymore. We've got to go back now to the two-class system of rulers and those who serve us. And that's our full intent, and we're going to do it. We have to develop as quickly as we can the means of doing it. Uh, they laid out a number of the parts of their apparatus, a deep state or a shadow government behind the, the nation, national government of every government in the world, certainly including the U.S. government. Um, uh, other aspects were a central bank, a network of central banks privately owned by them to, to take over the issuance of money. Um, certainly they were going to try war uh, but by the year 2000, they said their objective must be to be able to learn how to poison the people of the abyss, the people of the world they didn't want, um, in such numbers that they could really get down to the number of people that they wanted. Uh, but it was clearly stated they were to, uh, their intention was and their goal was to wipe out the middle class the world over entirely uh, so that no person uh, claiming to represent himself or uh, support himself uh, could possibly have political power or the control of any government. So that has been uh, the experience since 1901. Uh, Henry uh, or H.G. Wells, the author of that book, obviously was just the scribe. It wasn't his ideas out of his own mind. He was being told these things and they were written and passed around hand to hand, such as in that uh, reception for Henry George at the Theodore Roosevelt White House, uh, Margaret Sanger, uh, the rest of the intellectuals uh, of the uh, so-called Planned Parenthood, uh, it became to do as many uh, abortions and so forth as possible. Uh, the vaccinations, uh, learning how to kill people that way and so forth. All of these things uh, were part of that. And of course, it comes around to uh, 
uh, in today's uh, circumstances, uh, we've just had this uh, so-called uh, virus uh, problem uh, that uh, is very much a part of that apparatus uh, trying to go after people. Now, uh, there are a number of important events other than uh, just what I've described within that time period, obviously. Uh, we've had uh, the crash uh, of 29. We've had uh, the Great Depression. Uh, we've had uh, World Wars One and Two. We've had the Great Influenza. All of these things uh, of 1918, all of these events have been those planned events. There's plenty of evidence for it. I've gone into it in great, in, not in uh, exhaustive detail, I think, but in the necessary detail to put it all down with references so people can study it for themselves. It's just not possible either for the listener or for me to communicate as much as possible in these kind of talks we have. But I, I do this in order to try to make people aware that it is something that I think is highly uh, worth their time and effort uh, to learn these things because you just simply can't be fully and well enough informed and convinced yourself of what the true historical facts are unless you uh, carefully study it out and search it out yourself and see the support for uh, the things that I'm telling you here orally. Um, I completely um, agree with that, Wayne. Yeah. Um, you've done a great work. It, it is, um, I think there's 14 pages of documentation. I've counted them in the past, but there, you can't, I mean, if you don't know the history, if you don't know your history, um, you know, shame on you if you have the ability to learn history. So I agree with you that you can't get it done. We None of us can get it done orally. A couple of, uh, you know, episodes, online videos. But well, let me, you can, let me say, uh, well, let me say that you can, you can look at the past and clearly see that their plan is continuing. There's 6,000 years of recorded history, and we're only looking. You covered a great, uh, uh, you know, you did a very good job covering a time span, right? And we can extrapolate that out into what's going on today. And without, I mean, it just makes sense if you understand the history, right? You can, you can kind of it helps you understand what's going on today you know it's not this pandemic this shutdown of you know the the middle class small businesses it's not just happenstance it's not just accidental oh it just you know these boom bust cycles just happen every now and then that's part of economics no 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 they're caused so that's all i'm going to say yeah well uh, that 14 pages, I think, was uh, probably the uh, footnote uh, listings uh, yes. from the various footnotes in the book. Uh, I do try to provide you my sources in order to uh, make sure. But I want to make the point, uh, as you were saying, that people need to know their history. Uh, the real problem, um, whether of Americans or people around the world, certainly I can only speak uh, for Americans, uh, are my view of the situation is that we have been deprived of true history. Uh, one of the aspects of that 1901 plan, H.G. Uh, Wells, was to control the publishers. 
to make sure that books don't get out uh, that uh, are against our interests, that we do not approve, and so forth and so on. And uh, both the historians and the economists uh, have, I, I've, I feel sure that I'm, I must point the finger at them, that they knew the things that I found by my research. Surely, if they were spending their entire careers on finding these things, they would have found what I found. Uh, and uh, if they did and didn't report it, then they uh, are guilty of malfeasance because they are misleading people by leading them down the wrong path and giving them an improper and inadequate understanding uh, of what uh, has actually gone on. Uh, That's a a great point. Now, I don't want to be too harsh on the listener saying shame on you for not knowing your history. History has been rewritten. You know, the... uh, I think it was Napoleon who said that history is nothing more than lies agreed upon, you know, the written history. So, you know, the vic- to the victor, the spoils go, the victor gets to write the history. So I agree that history, true history, has been hidden, diminished, pushed back, rewritten. Um, so, and I, so it's a good point, and I don't want to be harsh on the listener. I want to encourage the listener to go beyond the, the, the presented construct because there is truth. Men like you who have done the work, um, it is available if you search for it. And that's the whole purpose that, uh, and the intent that I have is to encourage people to go beyond the presented construct and look with an open mind. Um, at history because nothing has changed it's just a new iteration it's a new variation um, and it continues and it's worse than we think in my opinion so well we are certainly at a a point in history that uh, was uh, in 2016 do or die uh, in large part Uh, I, I think that's about as succinct as I can make it and uh, uh, Lord willing and with his blessing, um, we had a, a great a turn of events. Uh, I'm fully convinced uh, and our experience since 2016 has certainly borne it out that uh, uh, an outsider was elected as our president. And one, not only an outsider who didn't uh, Uh, carry the torch uh, for the ruling elite, the globalist cabal, the ones that want every nation to uh, fail. Not only just want it, uh, they are working for it every day with these shadow governments, uh, with their deep state operatives. I think one of the primary points that needs to be understood so much better is that every nation, as, as Henry George said in 1880, Uh, Every nation has this imperial force trying to press upon it and control its actions, control its ideas, control its understanding. Um, And uh, as the 1901 plan said, it was not just for the U.S., it was for every nation that they were going to have a shadow government uh, that gradually weakens and undercuts the government in such a way that that government will fail. And when that government fails, they will then take it into the uh, fold of complete control by the global elite. And it will then be folded in uh, finally to a, a, a global uh, dictatorship in which they control everything. And certainly 
in those circumstances, they would thin the population to exactly uh, the few that they want uh, left. Uh, we're seeing much more detailed reports these days than ever before about the nature of their operations that have been going on uh, for quite some time. And uh, there are reports that those kind of operations are being um, attacked by um, unreported uh, forces uh, of our government presently, and that they're being rooted out um, underground operations, not just in, uh, in concept, but in reality, uh, underground operations uh, that uh, uh, are reported at in amounts and of a nature that is uh, absolutely shocking, even in terms of certainly what I've uh, thought and experienced and seen in the past. Uh, but uh, these things are uh, being done at present, uh, even in the presence of this uh, very uh, destructive uh, bioweapon epidemic that has been experienced uh, within this year. And, uh, and yet I think we're making a great deal of progress. Uh, if there's uh, something uh, at this point that you'd like to go into further, uh, I'm not sure how much more time we have left, but uh, perhaps. Yeah, we're, uh, we're, at, uh, we're at about 37 minutes. <clears throat> um, do you, so do you feel like, Wayne, sincerely, do you feel like there's being progress made against pushing back against the 1901 plan or maybe retarding their goals or slowing down their progress? Do you think? Uh, well, as, as difficult as things are right now in our country, I would say absolutely 100%. I am fully confident that uh, since uh, 2016's election, since 2017's inauguration, we have made tremendous progress in avoiding what was to come if the election had gone the other way. Right. Um, I agree uh, with that. I, I think that you could see that clearly in 2017. There was, uh, even in the financial world, there were, uh, you know, there was great progress in being made and taking over the financial uh, aspect of the U.S. And, and what I what I mean by that is, I think the federal government would like, just like they've taken over health care, they really would like to take over the financial services industry, following along what they did in the U.K. and in uh, Britain, where the the you know like financial advice, financial products are only distributed by the big, the big, big, big wirehouses. You know, in the the small to medium sized independent financial services firms are are being crushed. In my opinion, that's the goal to be taken over, just like the healthcare system was taken over. And I believe because of the twenty sixteen election results, that was stopped, uh, or, or or greatly slowed down. So I could see that just being in the financial services industry that there is progress and, and appreciative that uh, that that the progress was you know stopped, hindered, slowed down, and and I'm an optimistic guy, and I hope that more progress can be made. But then again, um, 
you know, I'm a realist. These, whomever, however you want to call them, the global cabal, the uh, secret elite, um, they're very skilled at what they are doing, and they've done it for a very long time. And and I think that they've made. I think that they've made tremendous progress, and I think the progress they've made has even surprised them. How easy it was to shut down the world economy through this uh, coronavirus hoax is what I call it. Um, I, I really think that they probably surprised themselves how the uh, the the average individual and even the mid to low level government bureaucrats and employees acquiesced to turning over their rights. I think that. Um, I think that they were surprised at how easy that was done. And I think even, like I look at, I consider going across like in the U.S., the, the uh, average sheriff who has more power than most law enforcement officials at various levels. Um, I'm quite disappointed that, that more sheriffs didn't stand up and say, no, we're not going to enforce, you know, these edicts unconstitutional edicts i'm surprised that the at the county level the state level at the city level at the parish level how elected officials just acquiesce to to shredding the constitutional rights of the individual i mean i'm surprised yes well i might say that uh, on my website i just put out a piece uh, yesterday on the constitutional rights in regard to this uh, epidemic, so-called. Uh, but in regard to uh, where we would be if the 2016 election had gone another direction, I'd like to recall uh, for the listeners the events that had occurred coming up to that election. They, uh, they included uh, the purchase of uh, millions of plastic coffins capable of uh, holding, uh, I think, three bodies each uh, by the Homeland Securities Department, as I uh, recall. Uh, the purchase of billions of hollow nose bullets yep. that are uh, not permitted in international warfare. Right. Uh, but purchased by our government. Uh, in those circumstances, uh, the kind of experience that might have been if we did not have the leadership that we have, uh, uh, it reflects why there has been such a tremendous effort, uh, no holds barred, uh, trying to get this president out of office. And uh, and somehow or other to uh, get him out of office, uh, hook a crook in the election uh, upcoming, uh, destroy the economy. That's a, a small item uh, for the people who are calling the shots uh, for this kind of thing. And so uh, it's a, a very momentous time, uh, despite the, these dangers that I'm uh, calling to mind. Uh, I remain optimistic uh, that uh, we are making great progress, uh, even though they've uh, wreaked some economic disaster on many Americans in these recent months. 
I think there's a good chance we can recover from that. And uh, hopefully we'll have learned a lesson about what these monsters are capable of doing uh, if they're permitted uh, to uh, exist in our midst. And they have existed in our midst for um, essentially all my life and, and longer. And so we'll have to, I certainly uh, think they existed in my entire parents' lives. Uh, and, um, and so it's been a long struggle, uh, but are we at a turning point in history? Uh, one that could mean all the difference uh, for the kind of world that will exist in the future and how, how good it might be for the nations of the world. Uh, we have become uh, almost accepting, uh, if not complacent, uh, with the uh, the depth of despair and uh, tragedy in so many other nations, and uh, we're experiencing some of it in in real terms here ourselves now, all at the hands of these people that uh, deserve to be stopped, and so uh, uh, my effort is to continue trying to. Uh, tell about what has really happened to people, what our uh, parents and grandparents actually had to live through uh, and experience and deal with um, that has been misrepresented uh, to us in terms of exactly what it was. Uh, the idea, for example, that it was only fear itself that was keeping down our people in the Great Depression uh, okay. is... Uh, as big a lie as you can tell, and uh, made by the man who was very much at the steering wheel of just how to starve to death as many Americans as possible during the Great Depression. You know, Wayne, I have, uh, I love history. I've been a student of history. And I had never, until I read your book, heard um, the millions of people that starved to death in the United States of America on purpose, with intent, um, through the Depression. I just had never been exposed to that, had never read it, had never heard it. Um, and, and shame on the academics, like you said earlier. You, you know they had to discover the truth, that they were legitimate students of history, researchers. They would have had to discover some of what you discovered. I mean... Yes. So, um, you know, good job on that. I, I just had no, I understood, <clears throat> I guess I didn't understand. I mean, I, I had read the classic, you know, the, uh, the common things about FDR and how he was a great, uh, you know, leader and he's really a demigod. But two, now I'm 56 years old <clears throat> and I've told this story many times. When I was in high school, uh, ninth grade, you know, you, you, you go and you sign up for the classes that you're going to take, right? Well, I was late uh, signing up for the classes, and so I had to take world history. And, and typically, the freshman year in, in high school, you're supposed to take American history. Well, I was late, so I had to take world history. So I was taking it with, um, you know, sophomores and juniors. And then when I was a, a sophomore, I had to take American history. So it was just kind of backwards, right? <clears throat> and so I remember in uh, my American history class in high school down here in North Central Texas, you know, 35, 40 years ago, long time, reading 
and, and I had a discussion with the the teacher. We're reading the history books, and I kept this history book a long time um, out of high school. But I was going through the the New Deal, you know, uh, a chapter on the New Deal. A couple of chapters later, it was going through communism and the Communist Manifesto. And I just made the point to the teacher that these were almost identical. Change a few words. The New Deal and the Communist Manifesto were, were really the same thing. And she idolized, this was my really first experience with the academic idolization of FDR in high school. When she got mad and threw me out of the class, I couldn't even go back to that American history class. I had to report to the principal's office because I was just pointing out in her, in their history book, the similarities between the New Deal and the Communist Manifesto. And um, it's... Well, it was, uh, it's a shame. And uh, there is a great deal of uh, um, governmental pressure uh, on uh, certainly schools. It's uh, closely managed in terms of what gets to our students. Uh, that's why I, I strongly urge parents uh, to learn about this themselves. Uh, your, your children are not going to learn about this unless you learn about it and see to it that they do. Uh, the schools uh, have, uh, uh, I had one uh, source that didn't really identify himself from a Boston uh, higher education institution, order I think 10 copies of my book. Um, uh, and I have to salute them for doing that, uh, at least for uh, taking a look. Sure. Uh, because none others have, no others. Uh, and uh, it will not get into classrooms, even though I, I'm convinced that my book is readable and understandable by high school uh, students, certainly by college students. Uh, and it is uh, uh, carefully documented in terms of particularly the actions taken by FDR to make certain that there was an absolutely, I mean, we're talking about uh, a deflation in the American economy that made the 1870s look like child's play uh, when it bankrupted so many in the 1870s uh, as to uh, catch uh, Friedman's, I mean, uh, Milton Friedman, uh, I think, called it the longest contraction in American history but uh, it, it was child's play can, compared to the, the 1930s because uh, it was involved a deflation of the dollar uh, over the, the seven or eight years of about 50%. Um, the deflation imposed by uh, Roosevelt um, had the dollar at three to four cents on the dollar, five cents at the most. So you're talking about a 95% deflation uh, over a period of years that, uh, uh, well, we go on and on. It, it wasn't just uh, those kind of things. There are reports uh, that you get of the real reports from real people of ranchers having their, uh, having shooters out on their property, shooting down their livestock so they die in the fields 
so they can't uh, be brought in as beef cattle and and uh, used for food. Um, those kind of things, um, uh, you know, give a, a more of a realistic flavor. <laughs> we'll put it to what uh, our people actually uh, live through. So uh, it is a um, something that needs to be understood uh, on a family by family basis. Uh, it ought to be uh, given a close study because uh, they are points of intellectual understanding uh, that uh, make it very clear that there was a um, not just a hidden intention, but there was a deliberate planned program of causing poverty uh, at uh, and yet uh, the only reports we ever get are something about the Stalin uh, uh, pogroms and the starvation of the people in Ukraine and so forth and so on, if yeah. we get that at all. Yeah. And even back at the time, the newspapers, the New York Times was even reporting what a fine job Stalin was doing in those respects. Oh, my gosh. Uh, and but, and uh, Hoover's connection to all that. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Um, uh, yeah. So in any event, uh, um, I'll be glad to go into some other things if you wish, or we can. Uh, yeah, I uh, think I, I think this is a great place to stop. And I think that in the next episode, we should pick up and go continue into the depression and, and how planned actually it was and the construct. Uh, because it's very eye opening. And you're you're not gonna get to the truth. I've not seen the truth anywhere else. I don't know where else you can go to get to the truth. You know, in one place, uh, you know, comparative to what what you've done. So, well, one one point that I just make, perhaps in closing, on uh, in terms of. Um uh, where we are now, we are as much a captive almost as ever of the Keynesian uh, economic theories. And um, I have, I think, uh, presented clear evidence in uh, the Fruits of Graft that John Maynard Keynes went over to the dark side. His father had, before him had been the professor of classical economic theory at Cambridge University in England. Uh, he took over his father's chair uh, once uh, uh, he was old enough to do so. And then in the midst of the Great Depression, he goes to the dark side and writes this uh, book that is entirely unworthy of its, its uh, the accolades that got uh, the general theory and um, uh, uh, and um, he even says at the time that he himself, although he uses examples from the two volume work on uh, mercantilism or previous writings of the author of the, the main work on mercantilism, uh, he said about that author uh, who was Eli Heckscher, a Swedish economist, um, he said that Heckscher is much more, uh, we'll say, hostile to mercantilism than I am. This is Keynes saying, I'm much friendlier toward, Keynes, uh, toward mercantilism than, than Heckscher. Uh, and Heckscher is the uh, uh, authority on mercantilism. But uh, 
Hector later then said, well, Keynes is the guy who is coming out with all the same analysis as the mercantilists are. He's just acting like he's for the little guy. Yeah. He's just lying about the point that I'm really doing all this for the good of the common man, working man. And when it was exactly the kind of thing that still to this day with the Keynesian Federal Reserve, their approach to controlling inflation is to destroy jobs by raising interest rates. They have this understanding that if people don't have a job, they can't buy things. And so, okay, they might starve to death, but it brings down the price of goods because they can't pay for them. Now, uh, if that isn't the most outrageous approach to intellectual honesty I've ever seen, uh, that is the state of affairs in academia in the United States of America today and at the Federal Reserve. So uh, there we go. I'll, I'll uh, end it with that. There we go. Okay. All right. I, I appreciate you, Wayne, and I look forward to our, our next conversation. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on the Banking with Life podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, make sure to like and subscribe and click on that little notification bell. Otherwise, join us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher for weekly content.